When I was young, I loved the book of Genesis. I could open it up and I could read it. He's talking to Oliver after the early service. He's got an eye towards space. Loves the idea of what's way out there. Um, I had that same idea, that same love. But when I read Genesis chapter 1, as I got into my high school years, I was bothered by stuff. I saw problems that I didn't want to say out loud. I could have gone to mom. Mom always had good ways of explaining biblical truths. Uh, Our daughter, Gracie, right now has our four-year-old grandson. He'll be four in a couple of days. John Henry. And John Henry's going through that process of asking those basic questions. And, and, And it's so funny, mom, because Gracie is giving the same answers that I gave her that you gave me. I don't know where you got them from, but because um, I knew grandmother and she didn't have them. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. I, um, but, you know, like John Henry, is God really everywhere? And Gracie said, yes. And she said, and, or John Henry said, so is he in a boat? And she said, yes. And she said, uh, is he in my stomach? <laughs> Gracie says, yes. But as we get past that age, we still ask things, but they're of a little different level. And so when I was in high school, I had these problems reading Genesis chapter 1. I mean, you see these verses. And God said, let there be light. This is day one. God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, called the dark night, evening, morning, first day. So we got day and night, but we don't have a sun yet. How do we have day and night before we get a sun? We don't have a moon. We don't have stars. Day and night? I thought, that bothers me. Or how about this passage? God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse. And separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And that expanse is heaven. Like, there's water up there? And when we say up there, we're on a globe. So up there, if I'm in China is down there to me right now. That's that's messing with my mind. How about this one? Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. By the way, we put the word earth in the translation. The Hebrew, spoiler alert, is just land. He called the dry land land. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. I'm thinking, the waters were gathered into one place? We got waters all over the place. We got five oceans. We got more seas than you can count. Don't buy that seven seas stuff. There's a whole lot more than seven. Nothing personal to Popeye. But then how about this one? 
God made the two great lights. Now we're on day four. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. So that means we've already done the creation of the world. We've already done plants. We've already done fruit trees bearing fruit before he makes the sun. And then... How on earth is gravity working if our little ball spinning around isn't spinning around the sun? I mean, with the fruit falls off the tree, does it go flying up into space? I'm in high school now. This is this is play this is this is like this is jacking with my mind. How about this one? God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, and beasts according to their kinds, and it was so. All right, this is day five. Or day six. Day six, excuse me. This is day six. So we've already had fruit trees coming out and doing fruit. We've already had vegetables. We've already had all of this stuff happening, bearing fruit, doing it all. How on earth are plants bringing forth fruit without bees and insects to pollinate them? I'm like, this is weirdness. Now, one of the pluses to this is I was in high school. So I decided I wanted to know what this really said. This Genesis chapter 1 is one of the major reasons that I can go back to that caused me to go get a degree in Hebrew with as much theology as I could cram into the sides. Because I wanted something that could help me understand these problems. You see, I knew that the Bible was God's inspired word. And I had the confirmation of the Holy Spirit in my heart and life that told me God is real. That my faith is real. So I wasn't in a point of saying, well, this is garbage. I was in a point of saying, I don't understand this. And I'd like to understand it more fully. And so we come to a study of Genesis today. And today what I want to look at is creation. And I put one there because we're going to look at creation successively. I'm I'm going to come back to the creation story next week. But today I want to do three things. I want to first talk about translation and context. See, there's a challenge And there's a thrill of understanding what was first delivered to ancient Israel. And so we're going to talk about that and what it entails. But we're not just going to talk about translation. I want to talk about the cosmos and Moses. How did Moses understand the cosmos? What was his working vocabulary? What was his science? I want to look at that carefully. And then, with the little bit of time we've got left, I want to do a fresh look at Genesis chapter 1 in context. That's our goal. Y'all ready? This is going to be fun. Pastor Jarrett came by uh, uh, Thursday before he left town. And... um, he said, he said uh, well, he came by to check to make sure I didn't mess up the James series he's preaching. Um, but then he said, uh, he, no, not really. I, I asked him for, for his insight and help, and he had such great insight and help. But in the process, I said, let me tell you what we're, what we're doing in Genesis. And, and he, he was just so encouraging with this. Um, and and, and it's, it's an exciting opportunity for us to look at this regardless of our age. So, first thing, translation and context. I want to tell you it is fundamental in my life to understand that the Bible is God's revelation. 
you can find God without a Bible. There are people worldwide, historically wide, that have found the divine. But not with a lot of understanding and only with a lot of mixed up ideas about who God is or how many there are or things like that. Because human understanding, just that search for something that inside of us we know is there, is never going to understand God the way God needs to be and wants to be understood. So he must reveal himself to us. And the Bible is God's revelation. I don't believe it's a revelation in error. I believe that the Bible accurately and with precision accomplishes exactly what God wanted to accomplish in his revelation. If we read it in context and we understand it in context, we will find the divine word of God is exactly what God wanted it to be and wants it to be. So when we look at Genesis, we need to understand something very fundamental. I had this conversation with my sister Catherine. I had this, she said, please make sure you make this point. I will. I had this conversation um, with Pastor Jarrett, and he said, please tell the class, quote, pronouns matter, close quote. Now, I want you to understand, Genesis was written for us. And by us, I mean all of humanity. Genesis was written for us. But, most importantly this morning, we must remember it was not written to us. It was written to ancient Israel. It's written for all humanity, for all time, but it was written to ancient Israel. And that means when we understand it in context we will see that it's written in ancient Hebrew. Not modern Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew. Bareshit bara Elohim et hashamayim va'et ha'eretz va'ha'eretz tohu va'bohu. You just got Genesis 1, 1 and 2. It's ancient Hebrew. It's not only written in ancient Hebrew, it uses an ancient vocabulary. The entire Old Testament is written using about 6,000 words. The average English-speaking high school graduate speaks in twenty to 25,000 different English words and understands around 50,000. So you've got this ancient vocabulary that's doing excessive duty. The first time I was in Israel... And one of the benefits of having a degree in Hebrew, even though it's ancient Hebrew, is you can go over there and read all the signs. So I said to Becky, we're going down the road. I said, look at that. I can read that sign. She said, really? I said, yeah, I know that's an electronics store. And she says, wow, it is? I said, yeah, the sign says it. And she says, what's the Hebrew word for electronics? I, I didn't know you could translate that. She's thinking biblically. What was the Bible word for electronics? I said, it's uh, electronics. <laughs> I just spelled it out in Hebrew letters. But ancient Hebrew had a certain number of words that had to deal with many different concepts. But it's not only written to ancient Israel in ancient Hebrew using an ancient vocabulary. It's also written in an ancient understanding so that they could understand it. Now, I want to grasp God's word. I want it to inform and transform my life. I want to be able to teach it in ways that will transform your life. 
by the power of God's Spirit. But to do that right, I need to read it and understand it in context. Understand who it was written to so that I can then apply it for me for whom it was written. Make sense? See, I'm convinced we treasure God's word when we read it in context. We take it out of context, we do disservice to God's revelation. We must be people of context when it comes to scripture. I want to give you some examples. You might say, if you want to read scripture out of context, that, there's, that innocent people do not suffer in this world. After all, Job 4, verse 7, it says, Remember, who was it that was innocent that ever perished? Where were the upright ever cut off? Well, I mean, that's what that passage says. But we should not draw from that verse that innocent people don't suffer. Do you know why? The guy talking is Job's friend, Eliphaz. And he basically doesn't know diddly squat about anything. If you read everything he says. Just because Eliphaz says it doesn't make it true. In fact, statistically, the odds are he's wrong. Because I read everything else he said. New Testament example. Uh, no innocent suffering. John 9, 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. What? That's in the Bible? Yeah, the Bible says God does not listen to sinners. Well, that explains why my prayers weren't answered. And the sinner's prayer? Well, here's the problem. That's out of context. If you read the context of John 9, that statement is coming from a guy that used to be blind that Jesus just healed when he's being cross-examined by the authorities. So some ex-blind guy with bad theology said, we know God doesn't listen to the prayers of sinners. Well, yes, he does. However, Jesus was not a sinner. We've got to read it in context. We treasure God's word when we read it in a good translation. Now, I'm going to offend some of you with my example. Let me apologize at the front. In the King James Version of the Bible... <laughs> Jude 1.22 says, And of some have compassion, making a difference. I mean, that's fine, and that's good, and that's theological. And there are plenty of places where the King James has a phenomenal translation, even over against more modern ones. So I'm not trashing the King James. But I am saying in 1611, when they translated it, they weren't really savvy on the Greek that they needed to be savvy on to understand the verb there. So the verb's a compound verb. It's diakrino in the Greek. And what they didn't realize, because they hadn't really done enough study maybe, is diakrino has a broader range of meaning than they thought. And the meaning includes doubt. And so our modern translations... Are a little more sensible. They say, have mercy on those who doubt. That's probably what Jude meant. So we treasure God's word when we understand it within context, when we understand it in a good translation, but we also treasure God's word when we read it in a cultural context. Let me give you some examples. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, 
and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Any doctors? Anybody with doctor? Nurse? Medical training? Took high school biology. <laughs> There's my class. If I go down, somebody yell out, is there anybody in here who took high school biology? <laughs> he needs medical help. Um, if you took high school biology, you know the human heart, boom, 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 boom. That four-chambered pump in your chest doesn't think. It pumps. Your brain thinks. So this passage that says the thoughts of the heart was only evil, God wasn't bad at biology, but to ancient Israel, they thought that beating four-chambered delimabob in your chest, muscle, was where your thinking happened. They thought that was the thinking organ. So it's written in a way that they will understand what God wanted to communicate. It's written in their understanding because it's written to them. The Hebrew word lev, lev, is your heart, but it also gets translated mind because they thought your heart was the thinker. Here's another passage. The Israelites have come out of Israel. God's got all of these instructions for all these things they need to make for the worship of him. And Moses calls Bezalel and Ohiliab and every craftsman in whose mind God had put skill. Oliver plays chess. It's in his mind. He's got that skill. Okay? But if you're reading this in the Hebrew... That word translated mind, in whose mind the Lord had put the skill, is the word for the heart organ. It's the heart. As if your skills and your talents and your abilities and those things you've learned by rote, by just doing them over and over and over, is happening in your heart pump. But they translate it mind because it doesn't make sense otherwise. We know that it's your mind. Now, we also treasure God's word when we read it in the cosmic understanding of the day. Just like the medical understanding. So, for example... If you read Genesis 15, 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen. The Hebrew word for the sun had set is from the verb bo. Beit vav aleph. Bo. And it means literally to come in. Like to come into your house. So the sun's been out all day. But at the end of the day, the sun went home, went into its house. That's what the Hebrew says. When the sun had gone home, had gone into its house. Well, now, we know the sun wasn't trailing across the sky in a tent, as the Psalms say. Wasn't trailing across the sky and then went home for the night. So it could come out of the house the next morning or come out from its home. I mean, the sun doesn't go home at night and leave in the morning, but that's the way the Hebrew's written. So you see a passage like Genesis 19:23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. That means literally the sun left, went out. Sun went out from its house. It had gone home to the night before type stuff. I'm not saying that they thought there was a literal house, but that, that was where it went at the end of the day, and then it came back out. 
But we know the sun wasn't moving around like that. Our cosmic understanding has taught us that the earth's spinning around. And the sun's relatively stationary, vis-a-vis the earth, at least. And, and you get the same thing. This is that word yatsah. It goes out. Like, if you leave your house, yatsah. Look at Joshua 10, 12. The sun stands still while they're fighting. Well, the sun's been standing still the whole time. The earth's been moving. What they're trying to convey is that daylight lasted longer than normal. Hebrew cosmology, the ancient Hebrew cosmology, is different. And we need to understand that. Because that's part of learning this in context. I don't know anybody today who challenges whether the sun goes home at night and leaves in the morning. So, translation and context matter. Oh, go back, go back, go back, 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 back. Psalm 19.4, I referenced it, but I put it up here. God set a tent for the sun. The idea was the sun's got a tent that goes across. They didn't know what it was. But they did not understand that something could be up here like this. Here, I'll take a crayon. And just sort of like hang around up there. They knew anything hanging up there falls down. So it's got to be attached to something. Or it'd be falling down to the ground. So they use language like he's got a tent for the sun. So that the sun's got something to hang on to. It was written by them, by God's spirit. Don't get me wrong. But it was written in their language and in their culture and for them to understand. And we do the greatest reverence to God's word when we read it in context and not in a narcissistic way that says well it's going to say exactly what I think it should say for me today so we've just got to be very careful to do that and it's really challenging but it's also thrilling to unlock what God has provided for us So if we look then at the second point, the cosmos in Moses. How did Moses understand the cosmos? What was his working vocabulary? Remember, for the first three months of his life, Moses is at home. But after three months, he's caught up by Pharaoh's daughter. Out of the rushes. And Moses is then, they bring in a nursemaid, his mama. But Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. This is Pharaoh's Sethi. And you can go to the Valley of the Kings in Egypt and you can see Pharaoh's Sethi's tomb. You can see painted up there what Moses was taught. To do that, though, we're having to travel around the world. We've got to go back in time. We've got to go back past World War II, past World War I. We've got to go back past the founding of the United States. We've got to go back past Martin Luther. We've got to go back past Gutenberg and the printing press. We've got to go back past the Normandy invasion of England. We've got to go back past the Roman Empire. We've got to go back past uh, 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 all that Rome had, all that Greek had, Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. We've got to go all the way back to ancient Egypt. To begin to understand this. To begin to understand what Stephen meant in Acts 7.22. When Stephen said Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in words and deeds. You've got Moses who's got the instruction of the Egyptians. You've also got an influence of Mesopotamia. Because even though Abraham's offsprings didn't all appreciate God and he had to work to reveal himself to the patriarchs, by the time of Joseph they seemed to totally disregard him except for Joseph. Even in spite of that, we know that they came originally from Mesopotamia. Get that up there. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. 
before he lived in Haran. So if, if we are, if, if we're drawing a map of the Mediterranean world, pop this out, if we're drawing a map of the Mediterranean world, you've got Turkey, um, you've got Egypt down here, and so this is Egypt. This is the promised land, Israel, or Canaan. And then up here is Mesopotamia, which is the Assyrians, the Babylonians, Mesopotamos, Potamia. You've got these countries. So you've got Moses being influenced directly, and the people too. They've lived there for 400 years. But you've also got some residual influence and influence into Canaan as well from the Mesopotamian world. And the Canaanites were slaves within Egypt. And so they've got an influence there. So then we ask the question, how did they understand the world and the cosmos to be? And the answer is, they used common sense. Let me give you an example. Okay, here we go. You got the earth. And if you go far enough on the earth, you're going to find water. And not only are you going to find water, but if you dig, you can dig a well. Because there's water under there. Some places it comes out in springs and rivers. But there seems to be water with this land in the middle. Now that's not the only water. Have you ever been outside when it rains? Yes. So somewhere up here is a bunch of water. And it comes in when it rains. Now we also know the sun's up there. Not only the sun, but you got stars twinkling at night. And they're big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> You've got all of these. Well, now, what's holding up the sun and the stars? Maybe it's a tent. We don't know for sure. But there's something that's holding all that stuff up. And something that's holding it up, we're going to call the firmament. And it's holding everything up. And it's got windows in it. You'll read this in other passages in the Bible. It talks about the windows of heaven open and the waters come out. Because when those windows would open, which may be clouds, but when the windows would open, that water could come out. Now, something's got to be holding the firmament up. And depending upon which culture you're looking at, some thought it were, there must be like tent poles because they thought it was a tent. So you got a tent pole holding it up. Others that were nearer the mountains thought it's probably the mountains that are holding it up because the sky seems to end at the mountains. This is the way they thought the world was. And it was really significant to them that the land seems to exist in the middle of the waters and the water's been pulled back away from the land. Because if you took a bucket of water and just stuck a land in the middle, it's sinking to the bottom. And the water overcomes it. So somehow God's pulled back the waters from the land. And something may be holding this up. You know, this whole land thing may have the foundations of the earth that are holding it up to keep it from falling in. This was their mentality. Here's the way it was in Egypt. This is the way Moses would have learned it. Moses would have learned that these are all gods. So here's what you've got. You've got the earth god Geb. And he's ground. He's dirt. See, he's laying down, that's because these are hills and mountains in the ground. So you've got the earth god Geb, and then you've got the sky god Nut. Instead of the sky being a tent, 
In Egypt, they were taught the sky is this goddess named Nut who's like doing a, a what is it? Is that a downward dog or no, that's a cat cow. That's a cat, the cat pose. Doing the cat pose. And you know, the stars are attached to her. The sun sails on her in a boat because she's got water up there. That's what this, those are raindrops up there, water drops. So she's got water up there. So the sun sails in a boat all the way down and is ultimately hatched out again the next morning to go back around. Now, who's going to help hold her up? Because that can be tiring. Try to be in a cat pose for eternity. So you need some help. So the sun god, Ra, is going around. That's sun god Ra. But look at this. This is the air god Shu. And Shu is holding Newt up. And that's the air between the earth and the heavens. That's Egypt. Now the Babylonians, their sun god was Shamash. And this is him. And this is, let's see if I've got a bigger picture. There we go. Shamash. So here's the sun god. You see the sun? Symbolic here for the sun god. And his throne sits, and look what he sits on. See these wavy lines? That's water. Those are the waters in the heavens. And down below it, this solid, bigger, thicker line, that is the... the the, the firmament, that's what holds the waters back in the heaven. And you'll see these little round things, those are the stars that get attached to the firmament. When that bright sun's not out, you can see the stars. And that's what you've got with the sun god Shemesh. You've got the stars, you've got the heavenly waters, you've got the firmament. Now that was their understanding I didn't realize that in high school when I was reading these passages in Genesis 1 and I was clueless because it didn't make sense. But now if I start reading it through their glasses, if I read it in context of whom it was written to, I can begin to understand what it says for me with greater accuracy. So let's just start with a smaller, fresh look at Genesis 1 in context. Now, we're going to go into more detail next week. This is just a warm-up. Okay, you ready? This is good. This is fun stuff. All right, here's your theme verse. The earth was without form and void. In Genesis, it reads this way. Bareshit, in the beginning, God created, bara, Elohim, the heavens, Hashemayim, and the earth, Vaha'eretz. The earth, and that's the Hebrew word Eretz, is land. Sometimes, I told you they had limited vocabulary. Sometimes it refers to the whole earth. Sometimes it refers to um, uh, uh, just the nation of Israel, the land. Sometimes it refers to dirt as compared to other elements. God created the heavens and the land. The earth, the land, was without form and void. Tohu. The bohu. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That, in classic Hebrew writing and in Genesis, is an introduction to what is to come. That sets the table for the meal we're about to eat. And so we see here this theme. The earth was without form and it was void. So do you know what God does? He speaks and he forms the earth and then he fills it. 
God takes what was without form and void and he forms it and then he fills it. It is very different than the Egyptian idea Moses grew up with in Pharaoh's house that said this is just the way the gods have shaped it and who the gods became and what the gods are over. It's very different than the Mesopotamian idea of some gods were cut in half and their bodily fluids became the rivers or became the this, that, or the other and, and, and they fought over it. No. This is God outside of creation speaking into creation. He creates the heavens and the earth, but the earth is without form and void until God speaks into something. It's chaos. And the same is true for your life and mine. If God's not forming and filling our life, it will be chaos. So what does he do? Day one, he forms light and darkness. He creates the form of light and darkness. Day two. He forms the heavens separated from the waters. This is the firmament. This is in their mentality. The idea that the heavens up above and the land down below there, do not think in terms of what you learned in geography class or physics class. Think the way they thought. Use their vocabulary. Use their thought forms. God separates the skies from the waters. And that separation of the firmament, he makes it, but he's forming. He's bringing order into this chaos. And then on day three, whoops, scoot back out. Um, oh, yuck. Bad PowerPoint error. Hold on, we got to fix that. Okay. Animation pane. See, I can't do this during church when I'm preaching. Moosey. But we can do it here. All right, we want uh, that too. We want filling. Um, we want number four. Five, that group needs to be on click. Okay, save it. Let's go back. Okay, sorry. This is real important. We got to get it right. Day, forming and filling. Day one, light and darkness. Day two, heaven separated from water. Day three, he makes the land. That includes vegetation. So he makes the land and vegetation. He's forming it. He's forming the land part of the earth. Now, he spent three days forming it. And by the way, three in the ancient Hebrew mindset is a holy number. Holy works of God are often done in threes. Yes, the Trinity. But even beyond that, go to Isaiah. Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Revelation. Threes, 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 threes. It's a holy number. So he does his holy work forming. Now what's he got to do for the rest? He's got to fill it. So day four. He fills the light and darkness he formed. He fills it with the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is not a lesson in botany. This is not to teach you how the vegetation can grow. And oh, if you look at that language there, it's not just vegetation. I mean, that language... He forms it. Let's see. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. Remember that? Let it separate 
Whoops. There we go. Let it separate the waters from the waters. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the water. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under from the waters that were above. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven or sky. It's the Hebrew word for sky. There was evening and morning the second day. Then we move into this third day. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. So he pulls back the waters and let the dry land appear. And God called the dry land earth. It's also the word just for land. Eretz in the Hebrew. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. It was good. And God said, let the land sprout vegetation. So it sprouts vegetation. No sun yet. They're not worried about botany. They're saying he formed this stuff. And he formed the earth and it sprouts vegetation. It sprouts plants that yield seed. It's a busy day. Fruit trees and they're bearing fruit. Each according to its kind. And the earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seeds. Trees bearing fruit. On the third day. This is not botany. This is forming and filling. And so he's formed that on day three. Now he's starting to fill on day four. He has three days of perfect filling. He films fills the light and darkness with the sun, moon, and stars. The heavens that were separated from the waters, the sky, he fills it. Fish go in the sea and birds go in the sky. So he creates them on day five. And as for the land with all of its vegetation and fruit trees, he puts animals, bugs, and people. The Hebrew word for bugs, creeping things. They're like creepy crawlies. My wife will tell you there's a certain bug not to be named that could not have existed before the fall. But the other bugs are part of this. So what does this do for us? Really cool stuff. So I want you to come back next week so we can talk about it. Here's your homework. Please read carefully again, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. In light of what we've just been talking about, try to remember these thought forms. Thank you to the media team that put this on the internet. Um, go back if you need to and, and, and look again at, at the chart or come up and grab a, uh, take a picture of the chart up here before it's packed away. Um, start thinking in those terms and then also be thinking about evolution because I want to talk about evolution next week and creation. So before we do that, here's your takeaway, your points for home. First of all, God is speaking. I mean, God is speaking here. I want everybody to know I have the utmost respect for this word. I don't think there's anything wrong in here. I think this says exactly what God wants it to say to us. I just think we've got to be very responsible in how we read and understand it. So look at this passage out of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord. See, he's speaking. He speaks in creation. God said, let there be light. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth. Who made it. He established it. He didn't create it empty. He filled it. He formed it to be inhabited. All of this that we're reading about in Genesis 1. Isaiah says he did it. But he did it because he's the Lord and there's no other. And if you keep reading, he did it for us. We're the goal. 
Moses would not miss the point. This was not Moses' day trip up Sinai for Science 101. This was, let's get your head on right about who God is and why this world exists. So, I want to urge you to know that God will also fill and or form and fill your days. You know, if, if it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, we read that and we should understand our days without God's presence and His Spirit, whether we realize it or not, are formless and empty. But the created God, just as certain as this world exists, that God seeks to form in us and fill us with His divine working power and Spirit to bring about His kingdom in good order. It's kind of exciting. It's kind of like mom reads books. When she reads books, she reads the last chapter first. She wants to know what she's working up to. It stunned our kids. Can you believe Mimi reads the last chapter first? Like she's like violated some cosmic rule of order. This is, this is spoiler alert. And we need to realize it because of point for home three. We should never want to go in reverse. We want to go forward and let God form and fill us. The Israelites didn't always go forward. And the prophet Jeremiah tells them, uh, <laughs> you've abandoned your purpose. You've abandoned your Lord. And look what's going to happen. These people are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. God says, I've looked at the earth. It was formless and empty. Tohu vabohu, same Hebrew phrase from Genesis 1. And it's not like that's used a whole bunch in the Old Testament. It was formless and empty. And at the heavens, and their light was gone. He took out what he filled. I looked at the mountains. They were quaking. The hills were swaying. The stability of the land. I looked, there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. All of the things that God had filled are gone because the people weren't following God. So we need to be following God and let him form and fill our lives. If not, we'll be as empty as creation would have been if he had done nothing and just left the earth without form and empty. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus. And then uh, if you haven't gone to church yet, let's go talk James. Um, whoops. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will speak and in, in your spirit will work in our hearts. Lord, we honor and respect your divine word. We want to understand you more. We want to understand and hear you speak to us today. As we try to understand in context what you've written for days gone by. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord, our Savior, our resurrected, risen one, Jesus Christ. Amen.